take a look at our scriptures for this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 22. If you want to open to Ephesians 4, that's on page 829 if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you. And uh, so that's Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, and then 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 22. You could stick a finger in there as well if you got an extra finger. And that's on page 837 if you don't have your own Bible and you're using the one in the seat back in front of you. So we'll be looking at those two scriptures this morning. Uh, the pastor of a small Protestant church in a rural community was doing everything to try to win a local community leader to Christ. He stopped by this man's office countless times to invite him to church. Then one night a fire broke out at the church and the volunteer fire department came out, including this community leader. And the community leader wound up in the bucket line right next to uh, the pastor, right near this burning building. And, and the pastor said as they're passing buckets, well, I see you finally made it to church. <laughs> And the community leader replied, that's because this is the first time I've seen this church on fire. <laughs> well, in the past few weeks, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit, the one who sets churches on fire. But why is it that so often the church is not on fire? We read about the New Testament church, and they were on fire, full of joy, ministering with power, proclaiming Christ with boldness, many coming to Christ, sharing their possessions freely one with another, and experiencing a palpable sense of God's presence. And we may be tempted to think, well, those were just Bible times. It's, it's not quite like that in real life today. But actually, the Bible won't let us get away with that. Because nowhere does the New Testament suggest or imply that the quality of life and experience that it describes and offers is anything except normal Christianity for all Christians. What we read about in the New Testament isn't Christianity on steroids. It's just regular, normal Christianity. And the witness of the church down through the ages and around the world today is that churches can and do regularly catch fire, just like the New Testament describes. But why is that experience so few and far between these days and in these parts? I mean, I, like you, have experienced the church catching fire. But it's been a long time. Well, two possible reasons. First, there are ebbs and flows to the work of the Spirit. Just like the tides rise and fall on the sea, just like in a close relationship, there, there are times that are intimate and, and close and warm, and then there are times which are more distant. So there are, in the same way, seasons to the Spirit's work among God's people. That's even true in the New Testament if you look closely. But, but still, it seems that, that even the low ebbs in the New Testament were higher than the high flows that we often experience. Well, that leads us to a second reason which today's scriptures address, and that is that we can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. 
You see, the Apostle Paul, who's writing these letters, assumes that what makes any church the church of Jesus Christ is the presence and power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Church, in the biblical sense, does not really happen without the presence and power of the Spirit. Uh, Preacher Daryl Johnson, whom I'm again going to shamelessly borrow from this morning, put it this way. He says, what makes a balloon happen is helium. The color and the shape are irrelevant without it. What makes a sports car happen is high-test gasoline. The size and style of the engine are irrelevant without it. And what makes the church happen is the spirit. The structure and the programs are irrelevant without his presence and power. And in the two texts that we read, Paul gives us some vitally important warnings about how we as a church can undermine and sabotage that basic reality of the Spirit's presence and power. In Ephesians 5.30, he warns us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not put out the Spirit's fire, or as old translations put it, do not quench the Spirit. The Ephesians verb, to grieve the spirit, is a deeply personal and emotional word. It speaks of suffering, of being wounded, of feeling pain. The spirit whom Christ has given us to make us the church is a person who feels pain, who can be hurt and saddened and wounded. The spirit has feelings. The verb Paul uses over in 1 Thessalonians is to quench the spirit. And this word has to do with fire, with, with, it mean, with, with the, that fire being doused or, or snuffed out. Fire is one of the images that scripture uses to, to speak of the spirit. When, for instance, um, the spirit falls on the early believers at Pentecost, it comes in tongues of fire. When John the Baptist foretells Jesus is coming, he says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. In 2 Timothy, Paul exhorts Timothy to fan into flame the spirit-given gift that God has given him. Fire. Like fire, the Holy Spirit comes to bring God's energy. Heat and light to thaw what's grown cold, to illumine what's in darkness, to ignite what's dead and lifeless, to consume what is not holy, to transform what is not pure. The Spirit brings the power of God into our life and our community. But we can quench that Spirit. Theologian J.I. Packer writes, The New Testament writers expect that every Christian community will show forth the power of the Holy Spirit. For to enjoy a rich outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a privilege entailed upon the New Testament church as such. For churches to lack the Spirit's powerful working in their corporate life is by biblical standards unnatural, just as heresy is. And this unnatural state of affairs can only be accounted for in terms of human failure. Here's the amazing surprise. We, as mere human beings, can quench the fire of God. And we can grieve the heart of the mighty one. 
Now, don't get me wrong. The Spirit is still present among every group of Jesus' followers. Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You don't have to be super spiritual before God will send His Spirit. We saw two weeks ago that the Spirit is a gift of the Gospel. Jesus, in His grace, not only forgives our sins, but gives His Spirit freely, though we don't deserve it. But yet we, mere human beings though we are, have the ability to stifle and to still God's presence and power. So Paul warns us, do not grieve, do not quench the Spirit. Well, how do we grieve and quench the Spirit? Have you ever wondered that? That's what we want to look at today in um, today's passages, which give us some answers. Because if Paul warns us in these passages not to grieve and quench the Spirit, then there's no better place to look for how we can do that besides immediately before and after those warnings. So let's see what Paul had been telling us in these passages which might have triggered in his mind to warn us about uh, stifling the Spirit. And let's see what he told us after he warned us as a follow-up to those warnings. Are you with me? Okay. So let me point out in these verses six things which stifle the Spirit and five things which please Him. There may be others, but this is a good place to start. And they're going to be on the overhead, but it's not so important that you remember everything on these lists. I mean, 11 points, that's way too many to remember. A sermon should have three points, right? <laughs> you don't need to remember all 11 points. What I'd like you to do, rather, is to listen in two ways. First, personally, ask, is there one of these ways that I may be guilty of grieving or quenching the Spirit that God is laying on my heart this morning? And we'll have a time later at the end of the service to respond to that. Second, though, as you listen, listen to whether you hear God saying anything to CBC as a church this morning through his word. Is there any way that we're corporately grieving or quenching the spirit? Is there anything standing in the way of the, the fullness of the spirit here among us as God's people? And we're going to pick up that question in the discussion group at 11.15 this morning. For those of you who are able to come. Because that's a question that the Catalyst team has been asking. And we'd really like your input on it. For us to discern it together as a body. Okay, so those two things. Listen for yourself. Listen for the community. To what God may be saying. The first thing which grieves the heart of the Spirit. We're starting in Ephesians 4, if you want to. Have your Bible open there. The first thing is avoiding the truth. Ephesians 4.25 Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Truth is very important to the Spirit. We saw last week that Jesus calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth. And the Spirit can only do His work in an environment of truth. We talked some about this last Sunday. So let me just briefly mention two reasons why this is the case. First, because God is truth. And so when we hide from the truth, we're hiding from God as well. God is committed to reality. God is reality. And every effort to distort the truth, to cover over the truth, to color the truth, to stretch the truth, to exaggerate the truth, 
is an effort in some way to avoid reality. It's an effort to be like an ostrich and to stick our heads in the sand. And when we hide from reality like this, we're hiding from God and from the work of the Spirit as well. The second reason the Spirit only functions where there's truth is that falsehood destroys intimacy. We know this from human relationships, right? When, when we can't trust someone, it's hard to open up to them. And once burnt, twice shy, right? Falsehood destroys intimacy. And yet, God's Spirit is all about intimacy. God's Spirit is always working to bring us into more intimate connection with God and with one another. And when a family of God's people can't be honest with one another, it breaks down trust and it ruins intimacy and it hinders the work of the Spirit among us. The second thing that grieves the Spirit, speaking rotten words, verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome, some translations have rotten, which is literally what the Greek says. Do not let any unwholesome or rotten talk come out of your mouths but only what is useful for building one another up. Rotten words. Words which don't nourish or build people up. Words which stink. Words which are worthless. Have you ever experienced this? You're, you're enjoying a, a wonderful evening together with a group of friends or, or family, and then someone says something. Maybe it's uh, negative and complaining. Maybe it's um, hurtful towards someone in the room. Maybe it's critical towards someone not in the room. And the whole tone in the room changes. The spirit has been grieved. Third thing which grieves the spirit. Being a taker. Verse 28. Those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands. Why? So that they may have something to share with those in need. When I was a teenager, my mom liked to lecture me about the kind of woman I should marry when I grew up. And one of her favorite lectures went like this. I know it by heart. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are givers and there are takers. There are girls who are always looking for what they can get from you and, and what's in it for them. And there are other girls who just naturally share and give and serve others. Marry a giver, not a taker. It's great advice, isn't it? And Paul is saying here that being a taker grieves the Spirit. You see, the Spirit's heart is to give. It's, it's the same heart that the Spirit shares with the Father who gave His only Son up for us. It's the same heart that the Spirit shares with the Son as well who gave His very life for us. And this is the heart that the Spirit's trying to inculcate in us a heart which gives and which serves and which blesses others, which pours life into other people rather than sucking life out of people. So when we insist on being a taker, we resist and grieve the Spirit's heart and His work among us. Fourth, fourth thing that grieves the Spirit, letting our anger off the leash. Verse 26, still in Ephesians 4. Paul says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Paul isn't talking about getting angry here. He's talking about not taking control of your anger in a healthy way. 
Is your anger like a dog off the leash running anywhere it wants? Or do you have it under control? Everyone gets angry, but what do we do with our anger? Do we promptly deal with it in a healthy way? Or, or do we vent it on the people close to us, damaging them? Or do we stew in it and let it fester? Or do we stuff it down so that it eats us away inside? Anne can always tell when I'm angry with her because, and when I'm not dealing with it because of the way I treat her, even if I'm trying to hide it. She can tell. I'm not dealing with it. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, Paul says, and do not give the devil a foothold. Take control of it. Work it through in, in healthy ways or else it will take control of you and it will open the door to the darkness. Unacknowledged and unresolved anger blocks the work of the Spirit and eats away at our spirits. Fifth, letting bitterness fester. Verse 31. Paul says, get rid of all bitterness. The word bitterness here can mean both bitterness um, toward life in general and bitterness toward another person. So first, bitterness toward life. This includes having a sour attitude, which results in sour speech. Grousing, complaining, griping, accusing. The glass is always half empty. You know, there are political talk show hosts and, and evangelical leaders, too, who have made a career out of this. And it discourages others. It, it drags them down. It clouds over their hope and their faith in what God might do. Second, bitterness in relationships. Bitterness here manifests itself as, as a bitter, resentful attitude which refuses to forgive and to be reconciled. It just keeps nursing its wounds for wrongs done in the past. You know, I've met a lot of Christians who, who can't forgive someone for what that someone once did to them. But I've met very few of such Christians who are vibrant and growing and joyful in their faith. Because bitterness is insidious. It, it worms its way through our hearts. It worms its way through whole churches, quenching the spirit, stealing joy and life. And then sixth, over in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20 now, despising prophecy. Do not treat prophecies with contempt but test them all hold on to what is good and reject whatever is harmful now I, I don't have time this morning to address the sticky question of whether prophecy still happens today that would be the whole sermon but in Paul's day sp the spirit was coming upon believers in such a way that they were spontaneously moved to speak God's word to God's people in that moment and what I want to focus on, just for a minute here, is that regardless um, of whether we, what we believe about prophecy today, it's true that God still speaks and acts among his people today, doesn't he? And sometimes maybe these movings, maybe often, these movings of God happen in unplanned and unprogrammed ways. Sometimes when I preach, I feel inspired to say things that aren't in my notes. Sometimes, I'm sure you've experienced, God unexpectedly puts 
something in your heart to share with another person or puts a certain person on your heart to go reach out to them. Sometimes if we let him, the Spirit will move us in a worship service or in another gathering, in a small group, wherever, to a place that we hadn't intended to go. Well, evidently, some people in the church of Thessalonica were uncomfortable when the Spirit worked in some of these unplanned ways. And they preferred things to be buttoned down, to be predictable, to be under their control. And so evidently, they were resisting or even despising fresh messages or fresh workings of the Spirit, which went beyond the programmed agenda. And Paul warns them, watch out, you're quenching the fire of God. When we don't give the Spirit room to do His work, He'll eventually, eventually just shut up and withdraw. I want to read for you... Um, a rather long quote, again from J.I. Packer on the subject, because I think it's worth the price of the whole sermon. Packer, if you don't know, is an old conservative Anglican theologian, so keep that in mind as you hear what he says here. He says, there's a subtle tenacity, uh, let's see, I think it's tendency. Maybe it's tenacity. There's a subtle tenacity abroad in the church that remains wedded to the way things were done a hundred years ago. I think that it renders, or it thinks that it renders God's service by being faithful, that's the word used, to these outmoded fashions. It never faces the possibility that they might need to be amended today if ever we are to communicate effectively with each other and with those outside of our circles. Letting our inherited buildings dictate what we do and do not do when we meet in them is part of this traditionalist syndrome and is very often a very potent part as surely we can all see. Churches tend to run in grooves of conventionality, and such grooves quickly turn into graves. Only styles and structures that serve the spirit should stand. Everything bogging us down in lifeless routines or restraining the fruitful use of spiritual gifts or encouraging people in the pews to, to become passengers should be changed, no matter how sacrosanct we previously took it to be. The Holy Spirit is not a sentimentalist, as too many of us are. He is a change agent. And he comes to change human structures as well as human hearts. Change for its own sake is mere fidgeting. But change that gets rid of obstacles to God's fullest blessing is both a necessity and a mercy. And that's where we're at as a church, isn't it? Grappling with what that change looks like. So six things which grieve the heart of the Spirit and which douse the fire of God. Now we're going to move on to five things which please the Spirit. Five things which fan into flame God's powerful work among us. You ready? Five more? First, a teachable and a leadable spirit. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. We're still in 1 Thessalonians now we ask you, brothers and sisters, Paul says, to acknowledge, other translations have to respect or to honor, those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Now I find this one rather awkward as a leader, because preaching these verses could be a power trip. Look, the Bible says you should listen to me. <laughs> I, like you, have been raised in a democracy where we're constantly scrutinizing our leaders, and, and if we don't like what we're do they're doing, we just vote them out. 
we the people have the power. And yet God says we're to respect our leaders and we're to hold them in high regard and love. And I think what Paul is recognizing here is that God gives leaders to his churches so his churches will get somewhere. God gifts these leaders with spiritual gifts through his Holy Spirit. And in so doing, he equips them with what it takes to move the congregation in the direction that God wants it to go. Now, that doesn't mean leaders are always right and that we should blindly follow them or that we should never question their ideas or judgments. I mean, I don't even expect my kids to blindly follow everything that I say to them. But when they do question or, or when they disagree, I do care about the attitude with which they do it, right? Daryl Johnson has this to say. The parents of teenagers are laughing especially loudly right now. Daryl Johnson says, If pastors and teachers and elders and deacons are to be fruitful in their labor, the community needs to be supportive of and respectful of their leadership. One can only lead where leadership is welcome. Where godly leadership is welcome, Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit is free to bring his new work. But where such leadership is not welcome, the Spirit's work through those leaders that he's gifted to lead is stifled and is quenched. Okay, second way to please the Spirit. Having a ministering spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Paul urges us there to warn the idle and disruptive, to encourage the disheartened, to help the weak, to be patient with everyone. Now notice Paul isn't just speaking to church leaders here. He's speaking to all of God's people. We are all responsible to minister to one another. And when we take that responsibility to help one another grow, then the Spirit can get busy doing His work among us. Notice this ministry involves both care and discipline, both encouragement and loving correction. When we're too distant from each other, though, or, or we're too timid around each other to speak into one another's lives about spiritual things, then the Spirit is hampered. The work of the Spirit is hampered. But as the body assumes its God-given role to build one another up in love, then the Spirit jumps in to empower and to breathe life into that process. Third, Choosing to respond to life by worshiping. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. I don't know about you, but I need this reminder because I can get weighed down by all that's wrong with the world. Especially if I spend too much time listening to the news. I need to know what's going on, but too much of it can help weigh me down. Well, what's, the, what's the, um, the answer to that? The antidote? A worshiping life, a worshiping attitude, not falling into the complaining trap. Now, Paul isn't saying that we need to feel joyful and, and feel like praying and feel thankful all the time or that there's never a time to grieve. But what Paul is saying is we do have a choice about our attitudes. We can choose how to respond to negative circumstances which life inevitably brings us into. We can grumble and complain and wallow in self-pity, or we can choose to rejoice nevertheless, to find something 
to rejoice about. We can also choose to pray. We can choose to get our lives off of ourselves and to to give our problems into God's hands, to get our eyes back on the face of God. Finally, we can choose to give thanks. Grateful words. They're they're a, a great remedy to those sour words, those rotten words we talked about earlier. Thankful words in our mouth displace grumbling bitter words. They lift our spirits in gratitude toward God. And so having a worshiping spirit opens up for us, uh, for God's spirit to do his work in our lives and in our hearts. Fourth, choosing, the resist, or choosing to resist the urge to retaliate. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, Paul says, Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what's good for each other and for everyone else. This is fundamental to Jesus' teaching, isn't it? Turn the other cheek, love your enemies, don't seek revenge, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who persecute you. Seeking to get even instead quenches the Spirit's work, but seeking to do good fans the flame. So strive, Paul says, strive to do good to each other. Pursue it. Go for it. Be intense about doing it. Wrestle with God in your heart about those revengeful feelings you have and let God help you overcome. Nothing witnesses to a skeptical world about the reality of Jesus like when God's people strive to do good to their enemies. The Spirit leaps to life in situations like that. It's the Spirit of Jesus after all. He's the spirit of Jesus. Fifth and finally, choose to heap up grace. Back in Ephesians now, chapter 4, verse 32. Paul says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The word Paul uses here for forgiving each other literally means to extend grace to each other. Paul is urging us here to be kind to others like God has been kind to us. To be compassionate to others like God has been compassionate with us. To extend grace to others like God has extended grace to us. The Spirit's heart throbs with grace. The Spirit's heart throbs with forgiveness. When we have the Spirit, that same passionate heart which led Jesus to the cross for us is among us and in us, yearning for us to treat one another and others the same way. Daryl Johnson puts it like this, to forgive is to release the healing flow of the spirit. To refuse to forgive is to grieve and stifle the very spirit who can heal our pain. So five ways we can please the spirit and fan his new redeeming work into flame. All right, well, let's respond now. We, as a church, want to remove every obstacle to the Spirit's presence and power among us. The opening reflection that that we open with this morning from the book of Isaiah used the image of a highway, of, of raising up the valleys, of cutting through the mountains, of removing the boulders, of making that highway straight and broad for God. The image that um, Terrence has been using with the Catalyst team and which was in that uh, quote from A.W. Tozer we read at communion last week is the image of preparing an altar. Um, 
like Elijah did, of, of clearing the ground, of, of building the altar, of laying the sacrifice, and of praying. And, and that's the image we want to think about this morning. We have an altar here, um, kind of a Boy Scout engineer kind of altar. <laughs> and um, if there's something which you sense in your own life is grieving, quenching the spirit, um, which is keeping that fire from burning brightly, then we want to invite you as we sing the closing song. There's a sheet of paper in your bulletin. There's a little slip of paper, uh, probably between the, uh, well, I'm not sure where it is. Anyway, just a little sheet of white paper. You can pull it out and confess that thing to God. Um, and then during the song, we invite you to come up and add it to the fire. Um, as a prayer of, of asking God to, to remove that obstacle from your life and from your heart so that the fire can burn more brightly. So this is a, a risky um, response idea this morning. But we have a fire extinguisher. And don't, don't worry about it. It's all under control. Just take time as we prepare to sing now to reflect, to respond to God. And if there's something you'd like to confess to him, to offer it as a way of allowing the Spirit to burn brighter.